Chapter the Eleventh of Poor Miss Finch. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Poor Miss Finch by Wilkie Collins. Chapter the Eleventh. Blind Love. Lucilla was at the piano when I entered the sitting room. I wanted you of all things, she said. I have sent all over the house in search of you. Where have you been? I told her. She sprang to her feet with a cry of delight. You have persuaded him to trust you. You have discovered everything. You only said, I have been at Browndown, and I heard it in your voice. Out with it, out with it. She never moved. She seemed hardly to breathe. While I was telling her all that had passed at the interview between Oscar and me, as soon as I had done, she got up in a violent hurry, flushed and eager, and made straight for her bedroom door. What are you going to do? I asked. I want my hat and stick, she answered. You are going out? Yes. Where? Can you ask the question? To Browndown, of course. I begged her to wait a moment and hear a word or two that I had to say. It is, I suppose, almost needless to add that my object in speaking to her was to protest against the glaring impropriety of her paying a second visit in one day to a man who was a stranger to her. I declared in the plainest terms that such a proceeding would be sufficient, in the estimation of any civilized community, to put her reputation in peril. The result of my interference was curious and interesting in the extreme. It showed me that the virtue called modesty— I'm not speaking of decency, mind, is a virtue of purely artificial growth, and that the successful cultivation of it depends in the first instance not on the influence of the tongue, but on the influence of the eye. Suppose the case of an average young lady, conscious of feeling of first love, to whom I might have spoken in the sense that I have just mentioned, what would she have done? she would assuredly have shown some natural and pretty confusion, and would, in all human probability, have changed colour, more or less, while she was listening to me. Lucilla's charming face revealed but one expression, an expression of disappointment, slightly mixed, perhaps, with surprise. I believed her to be then what I knew her to be afterwards, as pure a creature as ever walked the earth, and yet of the natural and becoming confusion of the little inevitable feminine changes of colour which I had expected to see, not so much as a vestige appeared, and this, remember in the case of a person of unusually sensitive and impulsive nature, quick on the most trifling occasions, to feel and to express its feeling in no ordinary degree. What did it mean? It meant that here was one strange side shown to me of the terrible affliction that darkened her life. It meant that modesty is essentially the growth of our own consciousness of the eyes of others judging us, and that blindness is never bashful, for the one simple reason that blindness cannot see. The most modest girl in existence is bolder with her lover in the dark than in the light. The female model who sits for the first time in a drawing academy 
and who shrinks from the ordeal is persuaded in the last resort to enter the student's room by having a bandage bound over her eyes my poor lucilla had always the bandage over her eyes my poor lucilla was never to meet her lover in the light she had grown up with the passions of a woman and yet she had never advanced beyond the fearless and primitive innocence of a child ah if ever there was a sacred charge confided to any mortal creature here surely was a sacred charge confided to me i could not endure to see the poor pretty blind face turned so insensibly towards mine after such words as i had just said to her she was standing within my reach i took her by the arm and made her sit on my knee my dear i said very earnestly you must not go to him again to-day i have got so much to say to him she answered impatiently i want to tell him how deeply i feel for him and how anxious i am to make his life a happier one if i can my dear lucilla you can't say this to a young man it is as good as telling him in plain words that you are fond of him i am fond of him hush hush keep it to yourself until you are sure that he is fond of you it is the man's place my love not the woman's to own the truth first in matters of this sort that is very hard on the women if they feel it first they ought to own it first she paused for a moment considering with herself and abruptly got off my knee i must speak to him she burst out i must tell him that i heard his story and that i think all the better of him after it instead of the worse she was again on her way to get her hat my only chance of stopping her was to invent a compromise write him a note i said and then suddenly remembered that she was blind you shall dictate i added and i will hold the pen be content with that for to-day for my sake lucilla she yielded not very willingly poor thing but she jealously declined to let me hold the pen my first note to him must be all written by me she said i can write in my own roundabout way it's long and tiresome but still i can do it come and see she led the way to a writing-table in a corner of the room and sat for a while with the pen in her hand thinking her irresistible smile broke suddenly like a glow of light over her face ah she exclaimed i know how to tell him what i think guiding the pen in her right hand with the fingers of her left hand she wrote slowly in large childish characters these words dear mr oscar i have heard all about you please send the little gold vase your friend lucilla she enclosed and directed the letter and clapped her hands for joy he will know what that means she said gaily it was useless to attempt making a second remonstrance i rang the bell under protest imagine her receiving a present from a gentleman 
to whom she had spoken for the first time that morning, and the groom was sent off to Browndown with the letter. In making this concession, I privately said to myself, I shall keep a tight hand over Oscar. He is the manageable person of the two. The interval before the return of the groom was not an easy interval to fill up. I proposed some music. Lucilla was still too full of her new interest to be able to give her attention to anything else. She suddenly remembered that her father and her stepmother ought both to be informed that Mr. de Bourg was a perfectly presentable person at the rectory. She decided on writing to her father. On this occasion she made no difficulty about permitting me to hold the pen, while she told me what to write. We produced between us rather a flighty, enthusiastic, high-flown sort of letter. I felt by no means sure that we should raise a favourable impression of our new neighbour in the mind of Reverend Finch. That was, however, not my affair. I appeared to excellent advantage in the matter as the judicious foreign lady who had insisted on making inquiries. For the rest it was a point of honour with me, writing for a person who was blind, not to change a single word in the sentences which Lucilla dictated to me. The letter completed, I wrote the address of the house in Brighton, at which Mr. Finch then happened to be staying, and I was next about to close the envelope, in due course, when Lucilla stopped me. "'Wait a little,' she said. "'Don't close the letter yet.' I wondered why the envelope was to be left open, and why Lucilla looked a little confused when she forbade me to close it. Another unexpected revelation of the influence of their affliction on the natures of the blind was waiting to enlighten me on those two points. After consultation between us, it had been decided, at Lucilla's express request, that I should inform Mrs. Finch that the mystery at Browndown was now cleared up. Lucilla openly owned to having no great relish for the society of her stepmother, or for the duty invariably devolving on anybody who was long in the company of that fertile lady, of either finding her handkerchief or holding her baby. A duplicate key of the door of communication between the two sides of the house was given to me, and I left the room. Before performing my errand, I went for a minute into my bedchamber, to put away my hat and parasol. Returning into the corridor and passing the door of the sitting-room, I found that it had been left ajar by someone who had entered after I had left, and I heard Lucilla's voice say, "'Take that letter out of the envelope and read it to me.' I pursued my way along the passage very slowly, I own, and I heard the first sentences of the letter which I had written under Lucilla's dictation read aloud to her in the old nurse's voice. The incurable suspicion of the blind always abandoned to the same melancholy distrust of the persons about them, always doubting whether some deceit is not being practised on them by the happy people who can see, had urged Lucilla, even in the trifling matter of the letter, to put me to the test behind my back. 
she was using Zilla's eyes to make sure that I had really written all that she had dictated to me, exactly as, on many an after occasion, she used my eyes to make sure of Zilla's complete performance of tasks allotted to her in the house. No experience of the faithful devotion of those who live with them ever thoroughly satisfies the blind. Ah, poor things, always in the dark always in the dark in opening the door of communication it appeared as if i had also opened all the doors of all the bedchambers in the rectory the moment i stepped into the passage out popped the children from one room after another like rabbits out of their burrows where is your mamma i asked the rabbits answered by one universal shriek and popped back again into their burrows I went down the stairs to try my luck on the ground floor. The window on the landing had a view over the front garden. I looked out and saw the irrepressible Arab of the family, our small chubby chicks, wandering in the garden all by herself, evidently on the watch for her next opportunity of escaping the house. This curious little creature cared nothing for the society of the other children. Indoors she sat gravely retired in corners, taking her meals, whenever she could, on the floor. Out of doors she roamed till she could walk no longer, and then lay down anywhere, like a little animal, to sleep. She happened to look up as I stood at the window. Seeing me, she waved her hand indicatively in the direction of the rectory gate. "'What is it?' I asked. The Arab answered, "'Jix wants to get out!' At the same moment the screaming of a baby below informed me that I was in the near neighbourhood of Mrs. Finch. I advanced towards the noise, and found myself standing before the open door of a large storeroom at the extreme end of the passage. In the middle of the room, issuing household commodities to the cook, sat Mrs. Finch. She was robed this time in a petticoat and a shawl, and she had the baby and the novel laid together flat on their backs in her lap. Eight pounds of soap! Where does it all go to, I wonder? groaned Mrs. Finch, to the accompaniment of the baby's screams. Five pounds of soda for the laundry? One would think we did the washing for the whole village. Six pounds for candles? You must eat candles like the Russians. Who ever heard of burning six pounds of candles in a week? Ten pounds of sugar? Who gets it all? I never taste sugar from one year's end to another. Waste! Nothing but waste! Here Mrs. Finch looked my way and saw me at the door. Oh, Madame Pretolungo, how do you do? Don't go away, I've just done. A bottle of blacking? My shoes are a disgrace to the house. Five pounds of rice. If I had Indian servants, five pounds of rice would last them for a year. There, take the things away into the kitchen. Excuse my dress, Madame Pretolungo. How am I to dress with all I have got to do? What do you say? My time must indeed be occupied. Ah, that's just where it is. 
when you have lost half an hour in the morning and can't pick it up again to say nothing of having the storeroom on your mind and the children's dinner late and the baby fractious one slips on a petticoat and a shawl and gives it up in despair what can i have done with my handkerchief would you mind looking among those bottles behind you oh here it is under the baby might i trouble you to hold my book for one moment i think the baby will be quieter if i put him the other way here mrs finch turned the baby over on his stomach and patted him briskly on the back at this change in his circumstances the unappeasable infant only roared louder than ever his mother appeared to be perfectly unaffected by the noise this resigned domestic martyr looked placidly up at me as i stood before her bewildered with the novel in my hand ah that's a very interesting story she went on plenty of love in it you know you have come for it haven't you i remember i promised to lend it to you yesterday before i could answer the cook appeared again in search of more household commodities mrs finch repeated the woman's demands one by one as she made them in tones of despair another bottle of vinegar i believe you water the garden with vinegar more starch the queen's washing i'm firmly persuaded doesn't come to so much as ours sandpaper sandpaper means waste paper in this profligate house i shall tell your master i really cannot make the housekeeping money last at this rate don't go madame pretolongo i shall have done directly what you must go oh then put the book back on my lap please and look behind that sack of flour the first volume slipped down there this morning and i haven't had time to pick it up since sandpaper do you think i'm made of sandpaper have you found the first volume ah that's it all over flour there's a hole in the sack i suppose twelve sheets of sandpaper used in a week what for i defy any of you to tell me what for waste waste shameful sinful waste at this point in mrs finch's lamentations i made my escape with the book and left the subject of oscar de bourg to be introduced at a fitter opportunity the last words i heard through the screaming of the baby as i ascended the stairs were words still relating to the week's prodigal consumption of sandpaper let us drop a tear if you please over the woes of mrs finch and leave the british matron apostrophizing domestic economy in the odorous seclusion of her own storeroom i had just related to lucilla the failure of my expedition to the other side of the house when the groom returned bringing with him the gold vase and a letter oscar's answer was judiciously modelled to imitate the brevity of lucilla's note you have made me a happy man again when may i follow the vase there in two sentences was the whole letter i had another discussion with lucilla relating to the propriety of our receiving oscar 
in Reverend Finch's absence. It was only possible to persuade her to wait until she had at least heard from her father, by consenting to take another walk towards Browndown the next morning. This new concession satisfied her. She had received his present. She had exchanged letters with him. That was enough to content her for the time. "'Do you think he's getting fond of me?' she asked the last thing at night, taking her gold vase to bed with her, poor dear, exactly as she might have taken a new toy to bed with her when she was a child. "'Give him time, my love,' I answered. "'It isn't everybody who can travel at your pace in such a serious matter as this.' My banter had no effect upon her. "'Go away with your candle,' she said. "'The darkness makes no difference to me. "'I can see him in my thoughts.' "'She nestled her head comfortably on the pillows "'and tapped me saucily on the cheek as I bent over her. "'Only advantage I have over you now,' she said. "'You can't see at night without your candle. "'I could go all over the house at this moment "'without making a false step anywhere.' When I left her that night, I sincerely believe poor Miss Finch was the happiest woman in England. End of chapter the 11th